are still in the sermon series on the Mark, and we are going through Mark. Uh, we're learning about what Jesus is teaching and demonstrating who he is, and we're learning what his mission is, and we're also learning what does it mean to be his disciples. Not only the disciples, but we're learning that today, too, as we read and we go through Mark together. The chapter before the one I'm going to share about this morning, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the group, gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. He got the confession correct. You are the Christ. But if you remember correctly, he completely missed the mark on the implications of what that meant for Jesus' mission and what it means, the implications for us as followers or disciples of Christ. Jesus goes on after that confession, and he says uh, he's gonna, his mission includes suffering and dying, and Peter vehemently disagrees with him, and Jesus, in fact, has to rebuke him. Because he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. And then Jesus goes on and he teaches the disciples. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, then you must deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow me. And what does that mean? I mean, that's really a powerful statement. But what, what does that mean for us today as we choose to follow Christ? And what's the significance for us? It takes a lifetime, I think, to try to figure out what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Christ. It includes, I think, at times a lot of mistakes. At the beginning of Mark, chapter 9, we see Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and we're told that he's transfigured. This is what Pastor Jim preached about last Sunday, and it's just this incredible experience. In fact, then we're told also that Moses and Elijah join uh, Jesus up on this mountain, and they're just blown away. They're worshiping. And they're blown away. And then as they come down the mountain, they find the other disciples trying to drive a demon out of a boy, but they couldn't do it. And then Scripture tells us that Jesus rebuked the spirit, the evil spirit. The spirit shrieked and came out. And so we come to this Scripture this morning that I want to read from. It's Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30 through 37. I want to invite you to follow along in your Bibles or on your app or on the screen behind me as well. And I'm going to read this. And we'll follow along. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30 is where we're going to start. And it says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not anyone to know, didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the home, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but also the one who sent me. And so if we go back kind of the beginning of that passage, they're on the way from Galilee and they're coming to Capernaum. They're on a road and Jesus is teaching them as they're walking along. And he instructs them a second time we see in Mark, he gives them an indication that his mission includes him suffering and dying. And this is what he says again in verse 31. He says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill, they will kill him, and after three days he will, he will rise. But they didn't understand, right? The disciples didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And they were, in fact, 
too afraid to ask him about what that meant. And so they didn't, they didn't talk about it. Instead, we kind of implies in the scripture that now they're walking down the road, they begin to argue amongst themselves. Jesus is supposedly out of earshot, but what are they arguing about? What are the disciples arguing about? They're arguing about who is the greatest among them. Who will be the greatest? And this, is, this question, who's the greatest, is a question that never gets old. It's never run its course, right? It's been around since the beginning of time, right? We know it's been around since Adam and Eve thought that they could be like God. They thought they could be great like God too. And so the scripture goes on. It says, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve to him. Now, this is like Mark telling us, pay attention. Anytime a rabbi sits down with his disciples to teach them, it's in a very important lesson for them to learn. And in fact, this is true with Jesus as well. So Mark is basically saying in neon sign, watch and listen to this next thing that Jesus says. And so he goes on and says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last in the servant of all. And he's saying basically this is central to what it means to follow me. It goes to the very core of the meaning of life and what it means to live in the kingdom of God and and to what it means to be the church. It also shows how radically uh, revolutionary Jesus' teaching is. It's one of the greatest paradoxes of all of history. And all of our assumed ideas about importance and greatness are turned to dust in this statement, this definition of greatness. All the boasting, all the pomp and circumstance of power are irrelevant. And Jesus stops the entire human parade and puts it in reverse and says, no, your, your understanding of greatness is all wrong. And I'm going to show you what that means. Indeed, what Jesus says uh, to society so upsets our culture, that the, the, the way we view greatness, that we, as his followers, might literally stagger at the thought of accepting it as our way of life. Clearly, Jesus' disciples had thought of their calling as, to follow Christ as, as an opportunity. They saw this great kingdom coming about, and they wanted to be at his right hand. They, they were arguing about who's going to be the one at his right hand to take advantage of all this greatness that was going to come. They were thinking it was really about position and privilege and power. And at this point, discipleship means service, but the disciples think it's service to them. And the last thing they can think about is the kind of sacrificial outpouring of self that Jesus is talking about. And literally that the cross, the message of the cross is all about. And what being a Christian is all about. And this confusion, the case of missing the point has continued down through the ages. And how hard is it for us to accept a crucified Lord instead of a conquering king? How reluctant are we to accept the cross of Jesus as the supreme revelation of God? But if we make a detour around the cross... We miss the way to God entirely. We miss what it means to follow Jesus, our Savior. And like the disciples, how many of us have been afraid to ask the depth of the meaning of Christ's death in our own walk with Jesus? Afraid like they are. They're afraid, right, to ask on the way, on the road. They're afraid to ask Him what it means. And we, too, can be afraid because of what the answer might be. That we might, too might have to get in too deep, that it might be too hard, that it might be really, really difficult. Because the answer makes the acceptance of the cross the law for life. The answer means that everything must change. It points to the extreme. It's dangerous. It upsets everything. It isn't comfortable. 
It's about living life as a sacrifice of giving of our minds and our hearts and our time and our strength as a ransom for others. It's hardcore. It's a tough message. And in a world that's in love with itself, right, where we're told that it's okay, in fact, it's even great to promote ourselves, the disciples arguing on the road, they don't look very much different than our world today, do they? They look pretty normal about figuring out who's the greatest. And for centuries, people have thought about and fought about who will be the greatest. And these arguments have moved from bows and arrows to nuclear bombs. And, you know, if you really look at what's going on in the invasion of Ukraine, it's really at the heart of that situation itself, right? It's about power and prestige and possessions. It's about gaining control and getting moving up higher and higher on the pyramid of greatness. And because of this, nations and people stand in ruins. And all of us were continually bombarded with advertisements that are meant to bring to the surface things like uh, envy and covetousness and pride and vanity and greed. That's really behind the heart of much of that. And education, even of itself, is a means to sharpen our claws uh, as we are in the battle of competition. And the urge to be the greatest can even get inside the church and with a, a desire for material prosperity and social prestige and think and shudder. And how often these things displace the desire to seek and save the lost. A poll of tithers in a denomination that was taken in the last uh, few years revealed that 90% of the people who gave thought they expected something in return. They mentioned snappy sermons and awesome worship music and, and a full range of programs for the family. There's nothing right wrong with these things, right? Uh, We should, and we seek to do the very best that we can. But very few people in the poll articulated when when they were asked about what does discipleship mean. They didn't. They very few of them articulated service, and no one mentioned suffering. And Jesus asked the disciples again. He said, "What were you arguing about on the road?" And this question ought to be truly unsettling for us as well. What are we discussing as we journey with Jesus? What's the main topic of our conversations? What is the deepest desire of our hearts? What do we care about the most? Are we missing the point like the disciples on the road were? And so again, we're told Jesus sitting down, called the twelve, and Jesus calls you and he calls me to sit down and to listen to his definition of greatness. And he says, if anyone wants to be first... He must be the very last and the servant of all. And I just imagine, what if Jesus were to come to our community and, and he were to ask to pick out the leading citizens of the kingdom of God in our community? And, you know, who would they be, especially if they were measured by his standard of greatness? And surely the majority of the candidates would be, quote, unquote, you know, like nobodies, people whose names have never been anything uh, more than a telephone book, and, but they may be already written in the, the Lamb's Book of Life. But perhaps on Jesus' list, instead of the president of a large corporation, it might be the janitor of that large corporation. Instead of being somebody who gives a lot but has a lot, it might be somebody who has very little but gives everything that she can. Maybe it's somebody who smiles despite real tremendous difficulties in their life and thus brightens the lives of everyone they come in contact with? Could it be somebody who prays for and and prays with other people? 
Could it be a person who takes time out of their busy day and stops and helps somebody in need and in distress? Could it be a person that just offers a listening ear to people? Is it somebody who's willing to be present for others during difficult times? Could it be anyone who brings the love of Christ to others in selfless service, without judgment, without a self-righteous attitude? You know, would he pick you based on this definition? Would he pick me? You know, one way of putting this question to ourselves is, are we living before Christ or after Christ? Let me explain. Is our attitude or what we understand greatness or importance, you know, has it changed since we've come to Christ in faith? Do we, or do we still have the same attitude we had before we came to faith in Christ? If our attitude is not different towards greatness, if it's not different than way, what, the way we thought before we came to Christ, if it's the same now as it was then, we've got a large hole in our discipleship that Jesus says, we need to work on that. We need to help you understand that in the kingdom of God, this is a much different definition of greatness, of importance. It's in what does it mean to say Jesus is the Christ and what are the implications to being a follower of Jesus? I think, again, it takes a lifetime of learning and following from him and to try to figure it all out. And so how do we learn to follow Jesus? How do we come to understand the message of the cross And Jesus has an answer, and it comes in a picture lesson, which I'm so grateful for. I always like, you know, pictures and examples and stories and illustrations. Verse 36 and 37, look at it with me. It says, He took a little child whom he had placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. You know, in our society, children, they're like the apples of their parents' eyes, aren't they, right? The vir- virtual princes and princesses of their own family. And we, if that's our view of children, we're going to be uh, likely to miss the point that Jesus is trying to make in this story. In Jesus' day, if we understand how they viewed children, it makes a lot more sense. Jesus, in Jesus' day, children weren't the symbol of innocence that we think of them today. Instead, they symbolized powerlessness and vulnerability Children were non-persons in that day. There were very little interest in children in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, children, Childless Romans who wanted to have an heir would adopt adults, not children, because they thought adults were way more valuable and could offer something instead of children. And children were without status. They had no power. They could do nothing for themselves or others. And indeed, in order for children to survive at all, they must be served and served and served. In love. And if you're a parent, you understand that. They, it takes a lot of work, a lot of uh, investment to help a child grow up. And I think Jesus is using a child uh, uh, as a for instance in this story. It's not like it's only a child. I think he's taking this as an example of other things he wants to talk about. You know what I mean? It could have been anyone who is dependent on the care of others, anyone who's on the margins, anyone who's vulnerable, anybody who can't pay us back for what we do for them. And remember what Jesus says about the marks of true discipleship in in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I'll summarize it for you. This is what Jesus says. He says, For I was hungry, and you fed me. Uh, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. 
I was in prison and you visited me. So doing things for other people who can't pay us back and are not able to pay us back doesn't really gain us a whole lot in the world in terms of status or importance or greatness. But in God's eyes, it's a big deal. And just doing them for the sake of Christ, in the name of Christ, in the name of love, for the sake of love, without ever expecting a reward, that is the true mark of greatness, according to Christ. The first church I served in as a pastor uh, was a new church plant. And uh, we met in a school for six years before we could uh, get a building of ourselves for our own. And when we first started meeting in the school, we didn't, we had to go in every Sunday morning and set up all the chairs for anybody who was going to come to worship. It was a junior high school and we had the kind of a dual purpose room. It was their cafeteria and their kind of their theater and their uh, place they would gather for assemblies. And so, but when we would walk in the room, there was nothing in the room and we would literally have to set up all the chairs every Sunday morning. And then we'd have to take them and stack them and put them away in a closet when we were done. And initially, it wasn't that big of a deal. We weren't a very big church. We'd put 60 chairs out. But, you know, after a couple of years, we started to grow and, and grow fairly rapidly. We had to put out 100 chairs. And then we had to put out 150 chairs. And then it was 200 chairs. And then it was 300 chairs. And then it was 400 chairs. We were putting out 400 chairs every, every Sunday morning. And we had to put them all in rows and make sure they were nice and orderly. And then we had to stack them all back up and put them back in a closet. It was a lot of work the last few years. It was a lot of work. And there was a guy named Don. He was an older gentleman who came to our church a year or two after we started. He was single. He was divorced. He was kind of a gruff kind of guy. He was kind of a grumpy. He had a kind of a grumpy attitude. He was kind of a tough guy to be around. But, you know, after a few months of attending worship with us, He started showing up early in the morning to help us set up chairs, and he showed up every Sunday morning. And he would stay until after the second service, and he would help us to take all the chairs back and stack them and put them away. And he did it every Sunday morning for four years until we moved into the building. And I asked him about three years after he started doing that, I said, Don, I said, why do you do this so faithfully? Like, you never complain. You're here every Sunday morning at the very beginning till the very end. You're just an awesome servant. Why do you do this? And he said, well, you know, Wes, he said, I found Christ in this church after about three months. And he said, you know, he's made such a difference in my life. I want to make sure that everyone has a place, a seat at our worship services. It's really important to me to make sure that other people can come in here, sit down, learn about Jesus, and learn how to have a relationship with him. And he was like weeping as he was talking about this. Like I was so... So moved. And literally, we never asked him to help. He just offered in of himself, right? And he, he wasn't going to get any human accolades for what he was doing. And if I hadn't asked him, I would have never learned why he did that. But he was welcoming the stranger, right? He was fulfilling the scriptures. He was welcoming Jesus into our church. And greatness in the kingdom is found in those who can forget about themselves and reach out in service to others for the sake of Christ and in Christ alone. Do you know who Jesus associated himself with when he was on earth? It wasn't the very important in society, right? It wasn't the great people. No, it was the outcast. It was the loner. It was the sinners. It was marginalized people. It was prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, the unclean. And when he took up his literal cross, he was associating himself with the worst kind of humans, criminals, right? 
criminals who had committed crimes against the state so bad that they were being hung for what they had done. He had a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. The one on his right accused him and mocked him. The one on his left begged for mercy. And you know who Jesus was representing on the cross? He was representing you and me and all the people uh, since time has ever begun. All the sinners, which is every single one of us. And all the outcasts, all the criminals, all the lawbreakers, the vulnerable, those who are unable to save themselves, those deserving of death, and that's you and that's me. And Jesus, the only one who never sinned, the only innocent person to ever live, humbled himself more than anyone at any time, in any place, has ever and ever can and ever will. And he did this because he loves us. Because he understood what greatness was. He died the death we deserve, the death of a lawbreaker, in order to break the bonds of sin and death. And he bled for you and me. He took the beatings for you and for me. And when they whipped him and spat on him and called him all kinds of names, he didn't retaliate. He didn't demand his rights. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and showed himself to be the ultimate servant, the servant of you and of me. And therefore, we have absolutely nothing that we can boast about except for boasting in the Lord, boasting in His mercy, boasting in His forgiveness, boasting in His love, boasting in His grace, boasting in His greatness. For He's the first because He was the very last and the servant of all. Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to a life of radical humility and service. And it follows the pattern of Jesus' own life. And there's nothing more beautiful than what Jesus did for us. And as Jesus' church, we should ask ourselves this morning, how are we doing with measuring our success, our greatness? Not by what we take in, but by by what we give away. Not by the influence that we have, but by the service that we offer. Not by accumulating more, but by sharing what we have. Not by making ourselves look good to others, but by literally pointing others to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think a really awesome practical application for what Jesus was talking about, what the message has been about, is actually this blessed tool. I'm going to ask you to pull it out again and and open it up. And I want you to consider seriously about, you know, being intentional about thinking about people that God has placed you in their lives and how you can be intentional as a disciple of Christ to serve others. You know, those blessed practices, I think, are really, really practical. You know, begin with prayer. Prayer. Pray for those that are on your list. Pray for them regularly. God works through prayer. Listen. Listen to them. Listen to their questions. Listen to their stories. Eat together. Share life together. Become friends. Encourage one another. Serve with love. I mean, that's what our message is all about this morning. Serving others, becoming last so others might be elevated. And then finally, share the story. Share your story of how Christ has worked in your life, what he's done in your life. Share the story of what Christ has done for all. And, you know, the invitation that he has to all. So I want to encourage you. We're going to move to communion here just in a short time. I'm going to ask you to bring forward one list, make the same list twice again. One for you and one that you're going to drop off at the communion table that we can pray for moving forward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this uh, word, this challenging word from Jesus about greatness in the kingdom. It has very little to do with what our world decides is great. But God, it has everything to do with serving others and putting others first and helping them discover Christ and what Christ has done for all of us. And God, we're grateful not only for Christ's words about being great and serving all, that he not only taught it, but he lived it. He took it and demonstrated it by going to the cross for us, God. Not because he deserved death, but because we deserved death and he wanted to take our place. And so, God, we're grateful that we not only have heard the lesson, but we've seen the lesson. And now we have the invitation from Christ to be great, to be great disciples, to be great for in his name by putting ourselves in the back of the line and not the front of the line by being willing to serve all so that others might be encouraged. And so, God, we offer ourselves. We, this is tougher and harder than we can do on our own. But, God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, we can experience transformation. And we can turn around the definition of greatness in our life and in the church and in the world. So, God, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.